Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Well, a few weeks ago, I preached on Proverbs chapter 1. And if you recall, the first seven verses of Proverbs 1 identifies the purpose for the entire book of Proverbs. Solomon says that he wrote this book so his readers can know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple and knowledge and discretion to the youth. Then in verse 7, he concludes those introductory statements by saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And this contrast between the fool who despises wisdom and instruction and those who fear the Lord will become will be the, the central theme throughout the rest of the book of Proverbs, all the book. And Solomon wasted no time in making that point. Immediately in verses eight and nine of chapter one, he began to describe how important it is for children to obey their parents' instructions. And then he warned in chapter, uh, chapter uh, verses 10 through 19 that there are many forms of evil that will be enticing to not only the children of, of believers, but to, to all people. Evil will appear enticing to us. Evil will entice us by appealing to our righteous as well as our unrighteous desires, trying to draw us away into sin. And those who are not guided by wisdom, Solomon says, especially those young people who have neglected the wise counsel of their parents, will indeed be drawn away. They'll give, they'll give in to temptation to be made to fall. And the remainder of chapter one explains how the voice of, of wisdom, which is a personification of Christ, calls out into the streets, speaking instruction, speaking correction into people's lives. And we're once again warned in these verses at the end of chapter one that anyone who rejects the wisdom of God and continues to do what's right in their own eyes will experience God's wrath and judgment. And so to paint uh, the picture of chapter one with very broad strokes, it begins with an appeal to gain wisdom. Then it describes how enticement to sin will come into our lives trying to draw us away from wisdom. And then it tells us how wisdom calls out to the people, calling to them to be obedient and to repent. And that brings us to our sermon text this morning. That brings us to Proverbs chapter two. Chapter two is now going to expand upon what was uh, been presented in chapter one by describing the value and benefits that are derived from heeding the call of wisdom by listening to and walking in the call of wisdom. You might say the difference between chapter one and chapter two is that chapter one commands all people to receive God's wisdom and chapter two describes the blessings provided to those who are obedient to receiving God's wisdom. And this can can be seen in the way that chapter two begins. Verses one and verse, verse one and verse five should be read together. 
there's an interlude in between them, which is significant, but it is an interlude. It's a parenthesis. And so when you read verse one and verse five together, you get the essence of the message that Solomon is beginning this chapter with. In, in, in these two verses, Solomon writes, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with, within you, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find knowledge, the knowledge of God. If you receive my words and treasure my commands with you, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. This is a conditional if-then statement. It says, if this, then that. If you do this, then then that will happen. If you walk in God's wisdom, then you will walk in God's blessings. Solomon then spends the rest of chapter two identifying what those blessings are. Verse two, your ear will become attentive to wisdom. Your heart will be inclined toward understanding. Verse three, you will find discernment and understanding. Verse seven, you will be shielded by God, guarded from evil as you walk in integrity. Verse nine, you will understand righteousness. You will understand justice. You will understand equity. I counseled a young man who was trying to work through some challenges in his life. And from my perspective, the situation was not complicated at all. It was actually pretty clear. Uh, There was a right thing for him to do. And there were a host of wrong things that he could do. And the right thing was obvious. Um, The word of God spelled it out very clearly. But I quickly realized that this young man didn't want to do the right thing because the right thing was also the difficult thing. And so he kept trying to justify some of the wrong responses to the situation, which he perceived would be much easier for him. And my counsel to him was to do what the Bible says, which might be more difficult in the moment but would prove to be much less difficult in the long run because the Lord blesses obedience. Because the Lord blesses obedience. I explained to him that if he wants to walk in the Lord's blessings, then he must obey the Lord's wisdom. And as he continued, or as we continued this conversation, the young man said to me, I'm just so confused. I don't know what to do. The truth is he was not confused at all. He was conflicted. He was conflicted between doing what's right, which was the difficult option, and doing what's wrong, which was the easy option. And he was conflicted because he didn't believe the conditional promise that Solomon is writing about here in Proverbs chapter two, that if you walk in God's wisdom, then you will walk in God's blessings. What's commendable about this young man is that he was willing to seek counsel. What's not commendable is that he was apparently looking for a counselor who would tell him what he wanted to hear. He wanted somebody to say, go ahead, take the easy way out. You don't have to do the right thing in this situation. The right thing is the easy thing. Brothers and sisters, we must never mistake confusion with confliction. There will be times when you'll legitimately be confused. There will be times when you will wonder what the right thing to do is in a given situation is. When this confusion 
uh, sets in, when you have a situation in which you experience this confusion, then seek God's wisdom. Seek his wisdom from the Bible. Seek his wisdom from your parents. Seek his wisdom from the people in your life who have proven to have attained a measure of God's wisdom already. They will help you work through your situation. They will assist you in pointing you to God's wisdom by helping you find the right response while avoiding the wrong response. But understand, it takes faith in God to trust that he works through the agency of of the godly people that he has placed in your life. That takes faith. Solomon is reminding his son um, of this very point in verses one and five, as he writes, my son, if you receive my words, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. In other words, Solomon is saying to his son, you need to trust that God is using me, your father, to impart his righteous wisdom to you. To not believe that God is using the godly people he placed in your life to impart his righteous wisdom to you. And to not believe that if you walk in God's wisdom, then you, then you will walk in his blessings, is to put yourself in the place of conflict. It's to put yourself in the place of conflict you will no longer be confused about what to do because you know what the right decision is and you know what the temptation is to do the easy thing. And so you're not confused about the matter. You're conflicted about the matter. You know, again, what what the right thing to do, but you're tempted to do the easy thing. (coughs) Like the young man I was counseling, you'll be tempted to lean on your own understanding. You'll be tempted to take the easy way out. Yet God's promise in our sermon text is that when you walk in his wisdom, then you will walk in his blessings. Or in the words of verse 10, when uh, his wisdom enters your heart, then knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Then knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. I think the, the pleasant experience of one's soul might be one of the most unbelieved or underestimated of the Lord's promises. God is telling you that if you walk in his wisdom, then your soul will experience the pleasant blessings of obedience. That's the easy way when you look at it from God's perspective. That is the easy way to any situation, even though the initial step might be a difficult one. Yet I suspect many of us, whether today or at some earlier point of our Christian life, have silently and secretly feared that if we devote ourselves to following God and doing what he says to do, then we're going to suffer a dreadful and boring life. I suspect many of us have silently and secretly feared that if we devote ourselves to, uh, to following God and doing what he says, then we'll live a difficult life of submission to a bunch of rules that say, do this and don't do that. But that's the lie of Satan, brothers and sisters. That is the lie of Satan. Our adversary would like nothing more than for you to believe that being a Christian means you have to give up all the fun stuff and you have to live a dull and boring life of, uh, of, of oppression. 
Uh, what the Holy Spirit is telling us in verse 10 is that wisdom will not only inform you of the good path, what the good path is, what the right decisions are, but you will find that good path to be pleasant to your soul. In being obedient to God's instruction, God showers you with blessings so that your heart rejoices in doing good. He'll make it so that you find joy and satisfaction in righteousness. He'll give you pleasure and fulfillment in seeing justice and equity at work in this world. And when you walk in the wisdom and instruction of the Lord, you'll be able to join your voice with King David, who wrote in Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is the me my meditation all the day. And again, in verse 111, your testimonies are a joy to my heart. So far from dragging you down into a dreary, dull, and boring life, obedience to God will lift you to a life that's characterized by love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And this is a pleasant life, brothers and sisters. These things describe a pleasant life. It's pleasant to your soul. Take the prophet Jeremiah as an example. In Jeremiah 15, he described a situation that I'm sure all of you have already experienced at, at some point in your life, and I'm sure all of you will continue to experience this kind of situation over and over again until the day of the Lord takes you from this earth. The situation is where you're in a group of people and you're the only one who wants to seek after righteousness. Jeremiah explains how he was in that situation and he made a decision to separate himself from those who were not following and pursuing the wisdom of God. He made a decision to separate himself from those people. And he describes the people he's separating himself from as reveling in their sin, meaning they were enjoying their sin. They were pursuing sin because of the pleasure it promised them. Jeremiah said that when he separated himself from these people, he had to sit alone because nobody else wanted to give up their pursuit of what they thought would bring them pleasure. Yet the irony is that sin can never produce true and lasting pleasure. The best it can do is provide a temporary form of gratification. That is, gratification that's fleeting. And so the sin uh, needs to be committed over and over again in order to obtain that elusive gratification that our adversary uses to draw people into the sin. It's like, um, you know, that's his tactic, right? Um, the promised pleasure is never more than the fleeting gratification, and the fleeting gratification has a diminishing return. In order to gain that same level of gratification that was initially experienced, the sinner needs to increase his intensity in the involvement of that sin. It's like a drug addiction. People use drugs to experience a high, but the high doesn't last, and so they need to take the drugs over and over again in order to experience the high again. And because some drugs have a diminishing effect, the addict needs to take more and more of the drug in order to achieve that same gratification as a smaller dose used to provide. 
This law of diminishing return is true of virtually every form of addiction. It's true of alcohol. It's true of gambling. It's true of sexual immorality. It's true of pornography. All these things have the capacity to produce a fleeting form of gratification. But then the addict comes back a second time and a third time and a fourth time and that gratification diminishes each time. So the addict pursues the addiction with greater and greater ambition because he craves that same level of gratification that he experienced in the beginning. That's how sin works. That's how sin works. And that's how the devil traps people in the vicious cycle of destructive sin. What Jeremiah is saying is that he did not go down that road. He stood at the the front end of that road. He looked down. He could see where that leads. He said, I'm separating myself from the people who are going down that road. I'm not going to seek temporary fleeting gratification from sin. And this meant that Jeremiah had to sit alone all by himself. Now, you might think that he was feeling sorry for himself. You might think that Jeremiah would be feeling lonely. You might think that he would end up having a a very dull and boring life as an individual person committed to serving the Lord. But the truth is just the opposite. Because the Lord blessed Jeremiah for his obedience. God blessed Jeremiah with genuine and lasting joy that only comes from walking in the Lord's wisdom. Jeremiah wrote in 1516, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. You see the joy that he has here? This is what David was writing about in Psalm 119 when he expressed that God's testimonies are a joy for his, to his heart. And this is what Solomon is writing about in our sermon text when he explains that God's wisdom and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. This is one of the underestimated benefits that comes from being obedient to God's instruction. Serving the Lord in obedience to his wisdom will elicit true joy and genuine satisfaction in your soul. And the benefits Solomon is identifying for those who receive the words of wisdom are not fleeting, nor are they diminishing, but rather they persist. It's what David was saying in Psalm 23 when he wrote that goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Literally, David is saying that goodness and mercy will pursue you, will chase after you, will not depart from you because it's pursuing you all the days of your life. And Solomon is saying something similar in verses 11 and 12 of her sermon text. Discretion will watch over you and understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil. The emphasis here is on the Christian being guarded and watched over, being delivered from evil. I think it's a, a pretty persuasive argument can be made that when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he was indirectly teaching them to ask for wisdom. When Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he was indirectly asking them to pray for wisdom. 
when Jesus said, this is how you ought to pray, and then went on to petition the Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, I think Jesus was praying the same thing that Solomon is telling us will happen when we walk in the wisdom and instruction of the Lord. You will be delivered from evil. The Lord's wisdom will, will deliver you from evil. There's something profound here that I, I don't want you to miss. Look at verses 11 and 12 of our sermon text and ask yourself the question, who or what delivers us from evil? Some might say God delivers us from evil. That's why Jesus taught us to pray to our Father who art in heaven to deliver us from evil. Yet verses 11 and 12 say discretion and understanding is what delivers us from evil. This is not a contradiction, brothers and sisters. This is an explanation. Verses 11 and 12 explain how our Father who art in heaven delivers us from evil. And this is why I said a second ago that the petition in the Lord's Prayer for deliverance from evil is indirectly a petition for wisdom. God's wisdom produces discretion and understanding, and discretion and understanding are the means the Lord uses to deliver us from evil. When I used to sell security systems, uh, I ran into a lot of people who would offer explanations for why they don't think they need a security system. Uh, the explanations varied, but there were some common ones. I have a dog, I have a gun, I live in a gated community. We have a neighborhood watch program. Uh, sometimes people will say, I don't care if they steal all my stuff. My insurance company will replace it. And I was always intrigued by the person who said, there's a police officer that lives across the street four, uh, four doors down, as if that police officer is walking up and down the street all day and night with his gun on his side and watching for burglars. None of these explanations bothered me. I realized that they were just the way a person chose to say they didn't see the value of owning a security system. And that's fine. That's their decision. I wasn't going to argue with them. But there was one explanation that I heard from time to time that did bother me. It was the Christian who said, oh, I don't need a security system for protection because I have faith that God will protect me. And the reason this bothered me is because it's an overly simplistic view of how God works in the lives of his people. Who's to say the security system is not the means that God will use to protect his people? Imagine Elijah sitting at Brook Cherith, chasing away the ravens, saying, I have faith that God is going to feed me. So get out of here, you ravens. I don't need your bread and your meat. God will provide. So when I said a minute ago that there's something profound in this passage, it has to do with the Lord using ordinary means to accomplish his extraordinary providences. When God preserved baby Moses' life, his means was Pharaoh's daughter. When God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, his means was a man named Moses. When God brought judgment upon the Israelites, his means was an earthquake, or in other cases, a pestilence, 
Or in other cases, a foreign army. When God healed the blind man, his means was soil mixed with, uh, when Jesus healed the blind man, it was soil mixed with his own saliva. And when God delivers his people from evil, his ordinary means is wisdom, which produces discretion and understanding in the person that God is delivering. So in the way, the same way that Elijah was really and truly trusting in God when he received his provision of food from the ravens, we need to trust that God is delivering us from evil when we walk in his wisdom. This is just another way of saying that an essential component for you to be delivered from evil is that you do walk in the Lord's wisdom, which means if you're not walking in the Lord's wisdom, but you're praying to him, You're praying, Lord, deliver me from evil. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Yet you're not walking in his wisdom. Then don't be surprised when you find yourself entangled with evil. Don't be surprised if you're struggling with the burden of habitual sin. Don't be surprised if you can't seem to lay aside those sins that so easily ensnare you. By not walking in the Lord's wisdom, you withdraw yourself from the means that God uses to deliver you from evil. What I want you to notice are the examples Solomon gives at the end of our sermon text about how the Lord, Lord's wisdom will deliver you, what, or what the Lord's wisdom will deliver you from. Uh, he gives two examples. The first one has to do with men. The second one has to do with women. Concerning men, Solomon writes in verse 12 that walking in the Lord's wisdom will deliver you from men of perverted speech. And over the next three verses, Solomon expands his description of the men God's wisdom will deliver you from. Uh, It's men who forsake the path of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. It's men who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. It's men whose paths are crooked and whose who are devious in their ways. And there are many reasons that we can give for why um, it is an extraordinarily uh, wonderful blessing that God would deliver us from such men. But I'm gonna focus only on one. Let me assure the single ladies in our congregation that you don't want to be in in a relationship with a man like the one that Solomon is describing. And you certainly don't want to be in a marriage with a man like the one Solomon is describing. Yet many Christian women end up married to men who are perverse in their speech. And many Christian women end up married to men who forsake the paths of righteousness, who delight in evil, who are devious in their ways. We have to ask ourselves the obvious question, how does this happen? Why do Christian women get entangled with such wicked men? It's by not walking in the wisdom of God. It's by not heeding the good counsel of their parents and other godly people who have tried to impress the Lord's wisdom upon them. Remember what Solomon is saying in chapter two. Those who walk in the wisdom of God will walk in the blessings of God. One of the many blessings is to be delivered from evil. In the case of the single lady who's pursuing a husband, walking in the wisdom of God will protect her from marrying a bad husband. 
Now, the second example Solomon gives has to do with women. In the same way that a single lady who's walking in the Lord's wisdom will be protected from getting involved in a relationship with an evil man, so a man who's walking in the Lord's wisdom will be protected from getting involved in a relationship with an immoral woman. Look at verses 16 through 19. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress in her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they re uh, regain the paths of life. It's not a coincidence that both of these examples are of people who speak misleading words. The men of perverse words, the woman, the forbidden woman with smooth words. It's not a coincidence that Solomon is describing situations where the people who would entice you to sin are speaking misleading words. Solomon says that the men who speak perverse words and the forbidden woman that speaks smooth words are what you need protection from what you need deliverance from. And the specific form of evil that Solomon's identifying here is that which comes through the power of the spoken word. How many times have you fallen into sin because of the words somebody has spoken to you? There, there are all sorts of temptations in this world, but the temptations that come through the spoken word can be very deceptive and exceedingly powerful. It's the power of suggestion. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? It's the power of peer pressure. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. So they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. It's the power of threat. If you release this man then you are no friend of Caesar. It's the power of the challenge. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. It's the power of the taunt. He saved others, but cannot he save himself? It's the power of invitation. Come, let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He is gone on a long journey. It's the power of flattery. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man. It's the power of the trick question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay them or should we not? It's the power of the lie. Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring him to me, that I too may come and worship him. It's the power of the accusation. How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and, have you, now told, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. It's the power of revenge. Let us wait till the light of the morning and then we will kill him. It's the power of mob mentality. Crucify him, crucify him. Wisdom is the means that God uses to deliver his people from these verbal enticements to sin. 
When you walk in the wisdom of God, you grow in discernment, brothers and sisters, and you grow in discretion. Now you understand how to respond righteously to the subtle and deceptive and powerful temptations that this world speaks to you. This is how the Lord delivers you from evil. When, when James wrote in his epistle, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God and it will be given to him, it, it shouldn't surprise us that the context of this statement is about our need to be steadfast through trials and temptations. The wisdom of God that pro- is, is what produces steadfastness during these times. And this is why Solomon and James are both so eager to encourage their readers to pursue God's wisdom. They want God's people to be delivered from making the wrong choices. And this is why our sermon text concludes with a description of what that life of deliverance from evil will look like. Far from being dull and boring, far from being oppressive, oppressed by God's word, Verses 21 and 22 explain the blessings enjoyed by those who heed and walk in the Lord's wisdom. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the path of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. The land that Solomon is referring to here is the promised land. And we understand that to be a metaphor of eternal life. So When Solomon writes that you will walk in the good and righteous paths, we understand this as another iteration of the promise that God will deliver us from evil. He's just putting an exclamation on that point that he's already made. And when Solomon writes that you will inhabit the land and remain in the land, we understand this as a promise that God has given us eternal life and no one, no one is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand. It's what Jude wrote about in the last verse of of his epistle. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It's what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So walking in the wisdom of God is to walk in the blessings of God. The greatest of which is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a warning at the end of our sermon text. The last verse of chapter, of, of chapter two, verse 22, says that the wicked will be cut off from the land. This means God will bring judgment and condemnation upon those who refuse to walk in his wisdom. In the same way that the promise in verse 21 that the upright will inhabit the land and remain in the land points to eternal life in Jesus Christ, so the promise in verse 22 is that the wicked will be cut off from the land points to eternal damnation for those who refuse the wisdom of God. It's just the other side of the same coin. The evidence of their refusal to walk in the wisdom of God is their unwillingness to surrender their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The evidence of their refusal to walk in the wisdom of God is their unwillingness to surrender their lives to the Lordship 
of Jesus Christ. It's that confliction I was talking about earlier. They know what the right thing to do is, and yet they want to pursue the easy thing, not knowing that in the perspective of eternity, the right thing is the easy thing. But there's hope for those who have rejected the wisdom of God. The reason God is declaring these things with such precision and such clarity is because he's entreating people to change. God is forecasting the future for all of us. Here in in Proverbs chapter two, God is forecasting the future, telling us in no uncertain terms that if a person continues to walk contrary to the Lord's wisdom, then that person will perish in his sins. That person will experience the everlasting wrath of God. But it doesn't need to be that way. Such a person can repent of his sins and come to the Lord through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And while it's true that you cannot make your heart delight in the wisdom of God, and you cannot, by your own effort, make yourself walk in his righteous paths, you can call out to him for mercy. You can call out to him just like Bartimaeus called out to Jesus saying, Lord, have mercy on me. And God has promised that he will respond favorably to everyone who calls upon him in faith. He will forgive their sins. He will put a new heart within them, a heart that delights in his wisdom. And he will give them his spirit who, who guides and equips them to walk in the wisdom and enjoy his blessings. Because the, the truth of this chapter is that those who walk in the wisdom of God will walk in the blessings of God. Are you walking in his wisdom, brothers and sisters? Are you enjoying his blessings? Or are you one of the people who are conflicted about this? Don't don't pretend to be confused about it. There's no confusion. Solomon is, is explicitly clear. If there's any struggle with walking in the Lord's wisdom, it's because your heart is conflicted. And if your heart is conflicted, then repent of, the, uh, of, of wanting to pursue something contrary to the wisdom of God and cry out to him for mercy to give you a heart that loves his wisdom and is able to walk in his wisdom in order that you may experience his blessings. Amen. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.